go ahead and begin our time this morning. We're going to uh, jump into our class, but first we'll go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless our time together. So let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you that we can come together as your people to come underneath the word of God and underneath its authority and underneath its wisdom, underneath uh, the power that the word provides. Uh, we thank you that you've given us insight into the way that you think and not just that, but uh, clear instructions for what you want us to do and how we ought to live, uh, what it means to know you and how we can come to know you. And we thank you that this is not something that you simply reveal to us and then expect us to do all the work. But even though we rejected what you told us through our conscience, through what is known to us naturally, even in the world, even though we rejected this, you graciously sent your son into the world so that we might have uh, an opportunity to be forgiven of those things. And not only an opportunity, but that you worked in our hearts you opened our eyes to the truth so that we might come to know you and that we might respond instead of running from you and instead of rebelling against you, that we might draw near to you. We pray that you would use this time this morning to help us in that, to draw near to you as true worshipers, those who want to do what you say, those who are willing to do what you say, those who are able to do what you say and who are clear about what you have told us to do. And God, we pray that you would bless this time. We pray that you would be honored in it. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, good morning. Well, we're going to look uh, this morning at the second part of our series on government and the Christian life. If you weren't here last week, and even if you were, just a, um, a moment to review what we talked about last week. We thought for a moment about why it is that people care so much about the government, and certainly do, they do seem to care about the government. Government is uh, a, an ever-present feature in our world. And it has huge and uh, very impactful influence upon our lives in many different ways. Sometimes that can be helpful. Other times we don't necessarily like the way in which government uh, places itself into our life. We might think of it as intrusive or uh, that it might be very, very um, imposing. And that it makes us do things or prevents us from doing things in ways that we don't want. Uh, it's also all over the news. It's all over what people are talking about all the time. It has a lot of, uh, of uh, airtime, if you will. People talk about it a lot. And so it's constantly going to be in our minds. And among other reasons, it's also something that it's kind of easy to talk about without yourself having to do much by way of changing your heart. Now, that's not necessarily the case for Christians, as we'll talk about, because there are certain responses and attitudes, and even ways of speaking about government that we need to have. But in general, it's kind of the thing, it's almost like uh, having a sports team that you cheer for. You know, you can talk about what a good job or a bad job that they're doing, and it, all the blame and all of that can be placed on someone else. You can talk about what they're doing, but it really is about somebody else's problems and not about dealing with your own. So the government is appealing to us to talk about. Um, also, when you are a, not a Christian, one of the things that government can do for you is to help you to um, remove certain things from being required of you or from being prevented of you to do. I would say that some of the uh, recent, some recent, whether it's legislation or use of governmental power or um, uh, other things that have to do with morality uh, are ways in which people in society have... Uh, influence the government to remove things that would prevent their ungodliness. 
and would even encourage them to be more ungodly or allow for them to be more ungodly. Um, People who are sinning always want the affirmation of other people or at least they want people who are not uh, pleased with what they're doing to get off their backs. And one of the ways in which government is involved in this is if the laws of government are loosened to allow for more ungodly behavior or they are uh, they are tightened on people who would try to stop it so these are the kinds of things that government can do Uh, Christians should care and do care about government not only because it impacts our lives but because the Bible tells us a lot about it and uh, we should care about what the Bible says about it in particular because it's a source of great controversy and dispute among Christians. And we need to make sure that we are not doing our part in causing disunity and division within the body of Christ because we bring our political opinions and preferences into the sphere of the church and don't know how to treat other people in light of them. Sometimes we don't even know that that's what we're doing. So we need to understand what the government actually says. What are the limits of what scripture actually tells us that it should be or it should not be? Um, What are the principles that maybe should be aimed for? But certainly we need to understand where God's word gives requirements versus where it only has uh, allows for us to have certain opinions or wisdom in implementing the principles that are laid out in scripture. Uh, We then looked at God's sovereignty in ordaining human governments and in ruling human governments. Um, Government is not a human institution. Government is something that is established by God and God uh, puts rulers in place. He raises them up and he brings them down. This doesn't mean that he approves of everything that they do, but it does mean that he approves of the concept in general and he also um, is sovereign over the ones who are there. So he knows when we're told to submit to certain governments, he knows that they're hard. He knows that they're harsh. He knows that they're not doing everything the way that they should. But he still nonetheless tells us to do what we are supposed to do. And hopefully we had some hope at the end of this, which is that God will one day bring in his own perfect governmental system. God doesn't say in the new heavens and the new earth that he alone will just simply rule over everybody and everybody will do exactly what they're supposed to do without any type of authority. But there are even rulers in the new heavens and the new earth, not to mention the millennial kingdom, as the kings of the earth bring, uh, bring their offerings or bring their things into the city, as you read in Revelation 21 and 22. So these positions, this type of thing of government is not just, uh, not just something for a fallen world. It's not just something man dreamed up, but God uses it as well. So the question then before us today is, what should government look like? What should the government be? I'm sure we have all kinds of opinions about what it should be. And some of those things we may even say are not opinions, but those are actual facts. They're biblical prescriptions. So I want to ask the question this morning, first of all, and um, just to kind of keep it shallow and not too serious or uh, dive very deep, should we be theonomists? Should we be theonomists? That's a sarcastic statement on my part. Uh, This is a a controversial subject, I'm aware. Those of you who don't know what this word means, we will talk about that in a minute. But when we're talking about what should the government be, here is the question that I want to consider this morning. Should we be theonomists? Now, when we talk about the concept of theonomy, can someone tell me what that means? What is the word theonomy or what is a theonomist? What does that mean? Stephen. Okay. Okay. 
Okay, so it should be run according to God's laws and his prescriptions rather than our own man-made ideas. Okay, yep, so that's, that's on the track of where I'm even going in the way that I'm using the term this morning. So anyone else, what else would be involved in that? I want to be a little bit more specific in, in putting it in this way, and I want to acknowledge that there are differing definitions of this. But the, uh, the working definition just for this morning, um, and there are, there are more nuances of this that we'll get in as we go to later classes. But um, the working definition for this morning would be this, the view that Old Testament legal and judicial standards, and by that I mean Old Covenant, like the Law of Moses, should be followed by all other nations. So God's laws or legal system even as revealed in the law of Moses toward Israel should be followed by all other nations. Uh, So tell me, why would someone argue for that to be the case? Why should someone uh, hold to this position or why would someone hold to that position that all nations should follow the laws laid down by God through Moses? Yeah, right. Okay, yeah, God gave them. He's perfect. Why would you change perfection? Yeah, good. Stephen, see your hand? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's, uh, it, is a, it, it flows out of who God is, flows out of his character. It doesn't, it's not rooted in man. It's rooted in God and who he is. Okay. Good. Why else? Why would someone say that we should follow the Old Testament law given to Moses among all the nations of the world? Or at least our own nation. Why would that be the case? Okay. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, in the last time, so if everybody is going to be subject to Israel in one day or subject to the law of God one day, depending upon even somebody's uh, eschatological persuasion, then, yeah, well, if this is what we're aiming for, then why not go ahead and do it now? Yeah, yeah. Other reasons you can see why people might say, this is what we should try to do. Why we should do this in the United States. We should try to make the laws of this nation the judicial system, the legal system, the laws that are implemented, they should follow what was given to Israel. What was given through Moses. Yeah, Mark. Okay, yep, so if they're saying we need to, we are, we are part of bringing in the kingdom of God now, that Christ is uh, reigning or building his kingdom through us here and now uh, among the nations, and that this is not just something that he'll do in a moment when he returns, then this is the kind of thing that needs to be in place to bring that kingdom about. Yes, so under a uh, post-millennial perspective, this would certainly be uh, one factor And we'll talk about that concept later on as well and how eschatology plays into this. Uh, To be fair to people 
who are of that persuasion. Uh, it's not merely just that they would always say the Old Testament law is the thing that is to be implemented. And um, there, is also, there are also New Testament components. There are um, more basic moral components, and we'll talk about some of that. But this morning, we're just talking about the Old Testament itself and uh, how it would apply toward what we should do in government today. Anything else on why someone would say we should do the Old Testament law? Why should we have the Old Testament standards be the law of the land here and anywhere else? Yeah, so a little bit of the proof is in the pudding. Um, as you're saying, where like, look at what law, when, when man makes up the laws versus when God's standard is followed, what happens? Yeah, uh, let me throw a couple more out there. And uh, if you would turn to Deuteronomy 4 with me. Deuteronomy 4. Moses is speaking to Israel. Some of his parting words before they go across into the promised land without him led by Joshua. Um, and if we're looking at arguments in favor of theonomy, you can see that uh, there's a couple of here. The law is uh, it's the only prescribed legal code in the Bible. Okay, so we've kind of talked about that. That's the only one you got. So if you say we want to be biblical, then for some it's maybe as simple as, well, this is the only biblical law code we've got, so let's just follow it. Or the law is a reflection of God's character, and most certainly it is. And we'll talk about that um, and some of the nuances of that as we go. But uh, a third point, uh, Deuteronomy 4 tells us about the wisdom of God's laws. So verse 5, See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you're entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? That sounds like a pretty high commendation of the things that Moses was giving to Israel. I mean, God's law truly is wise. It truly is wise. And uh, we'll talk a little, bit a little bit later this morning about how that wisdom is obvious to a lot of people throughout history since then in the way in which uh, many of the principles that are laid down in the Old Testament law, even if they're not translated over one-to-one, -one, uh, are reflected in many modern law codes. Like there's a recognition that these things are valid. And as a unit, when these things are all considered and when people can see how Israel is conducting itself, if they were to follow these things, then they would say, man, this God who gave these things is really really wise he knows what he's doing there's no way that someone could just come up with this stuff on his own so we uh we recognize that god's laws are very very wise and then one more reason here and you guys have given others but uh we think maybe it would work better than our current laws to promote godly moral conduct 
And certainly in many ways I would argue that that is true, that certain things among the law would promote moral, godly conduct, at least, uh, at least externally and maybe sometimes causing people to reflect and to do so internally as well. But there are a lot of things that certainly would be more, uh, they would be more in line with people harming others less if some of the threats of punishment were there, if some of these things were followed consistently, uh, if the standard was in line with what was said there, there would be many fewer things that violated certain moral commandments such as found in the Ten Commandments. But these are some of the arguments then in favor of this. Um, I want to argue against this position though, and I want to answer the question, why don't all nations have to use the Old Testament law as their standard for governing? So why don't all nations have to use the Old Testament law as their standard for governing? So let's think through this. Um, first of all, God never tells us to do this. God never tells the other nations to use Israel's law for their laws. Now there are a lot of principles we can learn about what God cares about in a government and in a legal system through this he talks about not showing partiality he talks about not doing injustice he talks about caring for people not using the law against them but God never says that you're supposed to do this the law was given to Israel so fundamentally this is this is at the root of it that God doesn't tell us or the other nations that we are supposed to use the law of Moses as the basis for what we're supposed to do. Now, uh, I do want to mention that God does have a certain expectation that uh, nations will use, and not only that they should, but just that they kind of simply do use um, what we might call natural law. If you look over with me in Romans chapter 2 for a minute, Romans 2. In Romans 2... Paul is writing to the, uh, to the church at Rome, and he is telling them, having just told them about what idolatry does, rejecting God, what idolatry leads to, uh, he is also going to talk about hypocrisy, but he's trying to make the case that the possession of God's law doesn't make you more righteous than anyone else just because you know what it says. And he says, even the Gentiles have a kind of law that they follow. So possessing the law doesn't really get you a leg up in, in and of itself unless you actually do what it says. Um, and he says in Romans 2.13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So you have this statement in verse 14. Uh, Gentiles don't have the law. They don't have the Mosaic law. They don't have the Old Testament scriptures. And yet somehow they do a lot of things that are in it. Now again, we'll talk about this uh, in the next lesson about how uh, what God kind of does expect and want governments to be and what the standard ought to be when Romans 13 and other places talk about punishing evil and doing right. There's a certain standard that that's reflecting. But Paul here is basically saying that there are things that are uh, of the law, that are at the heart of the law, that can't be about so many of the details that they would not have had. The Gentiles don't do 
tabernacle sacrifices with the priesthood that Israel had. They don't follow the appointed feast in the calendar of Israel. Um, they, they don't divide the land the way that Israel was told to divide the land and so on. They don't follow the Sabbath day, things like that. It's very obvious that the, the food laws and other such things are not what Paul has in view. So when he says the things of the law, there is some kind of a subset of the law that he is referring to. And we're going to talk about kind of what that is. But basically it comes down to what people will often equate with the moral law of God. But we need to be careful and make sure that we don't simply say that this is God's moral law as expressed exactly in the law given to Moses. There are some things that are at the heart of that. And that's what God expects all people to do because it's been revealed to them. In fact, he says that in verse 15. They show the work of the law written in their hearts. Why is it that certain nations who are not really biblical at all will do things that often line up with some of the basic moral things of don't murder and don't steal and don't commit adultery and things like that? Why is that the case? Well, it's not just because there are vestigial effects of the Bible being known in previous generations. In many places, it's just because this is what's written on the, the heart of men. They understand these things on some basic level. And by the way, while we're here, this shows that they are accountable to God for what they do, even though they don't have the Bible. Because God has made enough known about what he expects of them that when they sin against him, they're still guilty and they're still accountable to him. So uh, it is true that God does expect that people would follow a certain type of what God has laid down. But he never says use the whole law, use the Mosaic law, this covenant that's been made with God and Israel as your standard. So this is, uh, this is one reason why that we are not to say, yes, we must do this. We must follow uh, the law of Moses. Um, a second reason. The law of Moses is an indivisible unit. An indivisible unit. So when we talk about the law of Moses, very often we talk about it in uh, kind of three parts. What would those parts be? What are the common divisions of the law? Yeah, Brian. The what now? Yeah. Okay, the writings of Moses in the first five books of the law. Okay, I'm going for something else, and I need to probably rephrase the question. What, what are, there are three divisions of the actual types of laws that people talk about. Yeah, Brian. No, not that. Stephen? Yeah, so civil law, ceremonial law, moral law. Okay, so civil, ceremonial, and moral, which basically refers to the three main um, angles of the types of codes that God laid down in the Bible. So what would be an example of something that's uh, ceremonial? What would that have to do with? Priesthood, sacrifices, temple, tabernacle, things like that. Uh, what about something that's moral? Adultery, don't commit adultery, don't commit murder, right? Okay, and then what about civil? Yeah, don't move borders. Um, if Don't uh, uh, make sure that you have, like we'll look at this in a minute, uh, if you have a certain type of animal that, you know, it's like you have the ox that like gores people. Or if you, uh, uh, you um, uh, we'll look, I, I've lost them all. I've looked, uh, they're in the back of my mind. We'll look at them here in a moment. But there are things that, that will, that if you, um, 
There are just specific things that have to do with punishments, penalties for things, uh, certain standards, amounts of restitution that are to be given if something wrong is done, stuff like that. So um, there are civil, moral, ceremonial statutes. And the challenge for us is this. uh, How would we divide those in that way? So it sounds kind of nice in principle. I mean, because in some ways there are laws that generally tend to be just this. They're universally moral, things that have to do with the priesthood, sacrificial system, things that have to do with how you govern and come bring things before a judge. But I want you to just take, um, imagine that you have all of these laws and you are, uh, you, have, you have them all like in a, in a document, a word processing document. And your job is to split them out into three separate documents where you have a civil document, a moral document, and a ceremonial document. Do you think that you could accomplish that? Well, it's a lot of work, first of all. But if you, if you had the time and you had the effort and the desire, could you accomplish that, yes or no, and why? Yes, you could, okay? We have a yes. Does anybody disagree? <laughs> okay. Yeah, so that's a good point. That's a a good example of a law that has multiple components to it, right? It has a civil component, certainly, but it also has a moral component that is, that's behind it. And it shows us things like, this is what this would look like to maybe play out the the concept of don't steal. Here's how this is expanded. And you can trace that that way, uh, you can trace that all the way back to when Jesus said that on two commandments, the whole law hangs. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And then you have things that expand further when you have some of the applications of those in the Ten Commandments and the law that's given to Israel at Mount Sinai, kind of in the initial stage in Exodus 19 to 24. And then you have all kinds of stuff spelled out all the way through almost the entire of the rest of the books of Moses. You have, uh, you have Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy with tons and tons of different things that are mentioned. And as you look into these, you'll find that a lot of them just can't be classified into one or the other. And you might say that some of them are even all three. Maybe to use a modern analogy, if you're used to... Uh, if you're used to cataloging things or organizing things on a computer, uh, the law of Moses could not be divided up neatly into file folders. It would have to use a tag system, okay, so that you could have multiple descriptions of something. Tags, if those of you don't use those, you know, you have, you might label a file, you know, that it, it's about, um, I don't know, uh, if you have a file on your computer, it's for home and it is for, um, I, I don't know, um, let me think of something else that might be there. Um, yeah, I'm drawing a blank at the moment. So, uh, you know, you might have something where you're, you're doing something for school, and the school thing, it has to do with both math and homework. So you can't just put it in a math folder, you can't just put it in a homework folder, but it has both of those tags on there at once. And so you kind of keep it somewhere, and anytime you look up homework, you can look up all the homework tags, and you can find it, you can look up all the math tags and find it, but you can't say it's only one or the other. So the same thing when it comes to God's laws. Many of them have moral, civil, and ceremonial components to them. Which is why you can't just say, well, there is this moral section of the law or these moral commandments of the law, and we just sort of keep those 
out and the rest of it is invalidated. That's not really the way that it works. The law comes as a unit. The whole thing, you're under the whole thing as a law code or you're under none of it as a law code. Now, as we'll see, there are, uh, there are things at the heart of the law that Romans 2 has already talked about that are even reiterated in many ways in the New Testament. So when you read Romans 13 and when you read James chapter 2, it talks about the royal law of loving your neighbor as yourself. And when you love your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to steal, you're not going to murder, you're not going to commit adultery against them, you're not going to covet what they have. So there are, uh, there are certainly timeless moral standards that underlie this but when you just kind of scoot over a little bit and say, well, that means that anything with a moral component in the Old Testament, we should, ex we should exercise the law this way, then that puts you in a place that goes beyond what God actually requires. And it misunderstands the nature of the law. So the law of Moses is an indivisible unit. Um, let me give you a third reason why that we should not use this as our governing standard, which is that Israel's legal situation, Old Testament Israel's legal situation is impossible to replicate. It is impossible to replicate their legal situation. First of all, Israel was uniquely redeemed by the Lord to belong to him. And the basis for this entire law being given to them was that they had been redeemed by him. So Exodus 19.4 through six, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. That is the context right after which he gives the Ten Commandments. Israel had this unique situation before God where they, as a nation had been given this. And so to have laws as a nation depended upon them belonging to God uniquely, specifically as a nation. Um, so then we find that the law of Moses interweaves not only moral commandments and civil statutes, but also religious statutes, which only function within a sacrificial system and in the land of Israel. You have to have that going or else the whole thing falls apart. You can't just say, well, there's moral commandments, there's civil commandments, there's uh, even some ceremonial things, but there's got to be a sacrificial system. There has to be a tabernacle, a temple, a priesthood. There has to be Israel in the land or else this whole thing just doesn't really work the way that it is supposed to. Um, so God didn't intend them to do this. Uh, let me think about, let me, let's just talk about for a minute some of the things that make the... Um, uh, sacrificial system, some of the laws that were required there that required the priesthood to be in place. Uh, what were some of the laws that had to do with a priesthood being at the core of this? What were some of the, the laws concerning the priesthood and some of the civil statutes built around that? Yeah, they had to come from one tribe, from the tribe of Levi. Okay, so if they don't come from the tribe of Levi, then they can't be a priest. This is not just a religious statute. This is a civil statute. You have to come from this particular group within the nation. Yeah, what else? Priesthood, ceremonial things that are also civil. Okay, yeah, yeah. And the tax system was built to provide for them, right? So it was built around that. When we talk about, well, you know, the... Um, the tax system in the United States should be built like that in Old Testament Israel. Well, you know, is the United States providing priests uh, for the people? So the tax system is built around that. Um, what else? Heather?
Yeah, yeah. So the priests have to be involved if there's some impurity, uncleanness in your household. What happens if, do we want to bring those over today? Why would we not bring those over into our society today? Things like, uh, okay, here's what you do when your house has these kinds of unclean things in them. Well, first of all, you don't have a priesthood to come and to check it out. You don't have a sacrificial system to come and clean it up ceremonially. And then also, is this the way that God expects for us to do these things if he has not told us to do it? Um, the land distribution was meant to factor in the priests. They were supposed to have 48 cities that were supposed to belong to them. They were distributed among the various tribes. So land was actually allocated on the basis of this as well. So that's just with regard to the sacrificial system. Um, not to mention that the sacrifices that are required are very clearly under an old covenant, not the new. Um, what about the land of Israel? The land of Israel uh, and living in the land of Israel. Are there any distinctive things there that just can't be replicated? Yeah, Dennis. Yeah, centrality of worship in Jerusalem. And God had said before Israel got in the land, there's going to be a place where I cause my name to rest. But everybody is supposed to do what? Go up to worship there. They're supposed to go into worship there. In fact, there are annual feasts that are given that Israel was supposed to follow. This is prescribed all the way back in, in uh, Exodus 23. So uh, uh, let me read a little bit about this to you. The annual feasts of Israel. Exodus 23 starting in verse 14. Three times a year you shall celebrate a feast to me. You shall observe the, you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread for seven days. You are to eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the appointed time in the month of B. For in it you came out of Egypt and none shall appear before me empty handed. Verse 16, also you shall observe the feast of harvest and the first fruits of your labor from what you sow in the field, the feast of the ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in the fruit of your labors from the field. Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord God. As we learn, that means they were supposed to go up. They're supposed to go to this place and all gather together. It doesn't really work very well in other nations where there is no Jerusalem to do that, to all appear before the Lord together and to do so with these specific feasts. In fact, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is connected with the Passover, which is a memorial for Israel, not for any other nation. So the land is part of this. Um, what else? Anything to do with property rights? Anything unique to Israel about that? Yeah, the year of Jubilee where things are returned. And what's that based upon? Is it just based on a general 50-year principle? No. It's so that, what's that? Yeah, the Sabbath. So the timing is based on the Sabbath, right? It's seven sets of seven years, and in the 50th year, it goes free after the 49th. But it's also based upon the fact that God wanted these tribes to have this inheritance in these places and that it would not be permanently exchanged. So the people were to keep their own territory, tribally speaking. It's not really the case for any other nation. Um, in addition to this, by the way, you have some other things that are related. Uh, the Lord's presence dwells only in Israel, and so much of the sacrificial system is built around that idea that the Lord would make his presence to dwell among the people, and the only way that they could approach him was through this series of rituals that helped them to move closer to him as he dwelt in the midst of the nation. Uh, you also have, of course, the Sabbath day, which was given to Israel in verses the same chapter, Exodus 23, uh, you have a law that has to do with the years and the day. You shall sow your land for six years and gather in its yield, but on the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow so the needy of your people may eat and whatever they leave, the beast of the field may eat. 
You're to do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days you're to do your work, but on the seventh day you shall cease from labor, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, the son of your female slave as well as your stranger may refresh themselves. Now, there is a lot of benefit in having a day that doesn't, uh, that is not allowed for any work to be done on that. But we know, and based on Exodus 31, that this is a sign of the covenant with Israel, that this is not something that the other nations are required to follow. So, once again, you have these laws that are given in light of God's specific instructions to Israel. Um, by the way, the majority of Israel's laws, the vast majority, are not merely moral. And many of them pertain to things like the tabernacle and the land. Just read through the rest of Exodus, read through Leviticus, read through Deuteronomy. And um, tons of them relate to that. Even some of them, depending upon the layout of the land, the limited geographical size, the location of Jerusalem, and even the various types of vegetation and animals. There's so much of it that's just dependent upon that. Um, let me give you another reason here. Even Christians are not under the law. Even Christians are not under the law. So how are we going to expect the governments of other nations or um, even a nation that we would try to make more Christian, so to speak, follow the old covenant law when Christians ourselves are not under the law. Uh, Galatians 2.19, Paul says he died to the law. He died to the law, through the law. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, let me read what Paul says about himself. Uh, verses 20 and 21, to the Jews I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews, to those who are under the law as under the law, though not myself being under the law. Here's Paul saying he's not under the law. So that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law as without law. Though not being without the law of God. But under the law of Christ. So Paul says I am under a particular law. But it is the law of Christ. Not the law of the Old Testament. Not the law of Moses. Again I want to talk about what is at the heart of that law. When we move forward. Because it is vital for understanding as a believer. That there is the, at the heart of God's Old Testament law. And what is flowing out in a moral capacity is that eternal standard of what God morally expects of people. And that's what is reflected as well in the New Testament idea of the law of Christ. Or uh, of what Romans 2 calls the essence of the law or the essential things of the law. So there is a standard that is reflected in the Old Covenant and in the Old Testament. When we, but when we just go there and say, here's every moral law that was given to Israel. We need to import those to another setting. Then we are overdoing it. Because God doesn't go that far. So the law is not binding on us, whether individually or as a moral code, to export to other nations. Now, it doesn't mean that the things that the law forbids are good, and it doesn't mean that the things that the law says to do are bad. It just means that um, not everything forbidden or commanded in the law of Moses is binding on everyone everywhere. And especially the same punishments or consequences don't necessarily apply when, even when other people do the same things and violate the same laws in other places, in other nations at other times. With that said, uh, we do learn a lot from the law. We learn a lot from the law. So we want to look at that here in just a moment. So before we do that and before we look at what we can learn from the law of the Old Testament to bring over into any kinds of uh, efforts to try to make a, a law good in another nation. Any other, any questions or comments on uh, what we've talked about so far? Why don't we have to use the Old Testament law as our standard for governing? Comments or questions? Okay, anyone? Okay, 
So we'll take that as perfectly clear then, right? Okay, if you think of anything, then certainly feel free to jump in. Let's learn a few things from the Old Covenant laws and think about what we can learn from it. Um, First of all, we've already seen, we learn how wise God is. We should observe Israel's law and see that God is a very, very wise God. And yes, as we've discussed, if Israel had actually followed this law, then they would have been an amazing nation to observe. God knew what he was doing. His law is wise because he is wise. So we can learn that, first of all, as we observe it and as you look through the law. I mean, this is the way we are with Scripture. You read it and you're like, this is just, this is just so much better than what anything has to offer. This is so insightful into the human heart. This is so good at how to live in the world that we are in awe of God. Um, another thing that we can learn from Old Covenant laws is how much God cares about the way that we treat others. And I want to just give you an example of this from Exodus 22. Exodus 22, God does care a lot about how we treat other people. Exodus 22, in fact, um, let me back up for a second because there is one thing I want to talk about on the previous point, just the wisdom of of God in giving his laws. And and, uh, I mentioned earlier how we have, we see a lot of what, uh, what God lays out reflected in other legal systems and uh, I want to just look at some examples of this. Dude, uh, Exodus 21, Exodus 21, so verse 12 to 14, look at this. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint you a place to which he may flee. Okay, talk to me about what are those crimes that are described there. What are the actions? What do we call those? There's two different things going on. Yeah, premeditated murder versus manslaughter. There is a distinction God recognizes between somebody intentionally killing someone and then someone... um, killing someone not intending to he falls into his hands he didn't lie in wait for him and there's some ambiguity here as to the motive as to what happened so there's a distinction here and God actually appointed that somebody may run away there were these cities of refuge that they could run to um, to protect themselves and then there would be uh, they could maybe judge a little more objectively there Um, if however a man acts presumptuously toward his neighbor so as to kill him craftily you're to take him even from my altar that he may die and that may even be a little bit more of the like first degree premeditated murder so here uh you can see the distinctions in the way that god treated these things all the way back thousands and thousands of years ago um you have principles of restitution in response to violation of property rights verse 20 uh sorry chapter 21 Starting in verse 18, if men have a quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and he doesn't die but remains in bed, if he gets up and walks around outside on his staff, then he who struck him shall go unpunished. He shall only pay for his loss of time and shall take care of him until he is completely healed. I think we see reflections of this in our own, uh, in our own legal system, even with regard to civil matters, civil code. Um, chapter 22, you have... Uh, In verse 1, a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it. He shall pay five oxen for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. Excuse me, for the sheep. So you have these different standards of how much someone should repay, which should be a deterrent to them doing this. Uh, There's a distinction in whether someone uh, is, whether they know 
what a person's intentions are when coming into their house. Verse 2, if a thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltiness on his account. But if the sun has risen on him, there will be blood guiltiness on his account. He shall surely make restitution. If he owns nothing, he shall be sold for his theft. Um, so there's this difference between what are the circumstances, allowing for different circumstances of when someone not only commits a crime but responds to a crime that's going on and something that goes on against them. Um, laws that consider, verse uh, 28, what you could or should know about something. So uh, this is what I was mentioning earlier about the ox. If an ox gores a man or a woman to death, verse 28, the ox shall surely be stoned and his flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall go unpunished. If, however, an ox was previously in the habit of goring and its owner has been warned, yet he does not confine it and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner also shall be put to death. Uh, there are things that, like, it, you're, where you're liable for something if, you know, if there's something at your house and you know that it's very, very dangerous. Like, you know there's a sinkhole on your porch or something. Uh, and you don't do anything about it. And you're just constantly, like, inviting people to walk across the sinkhole. Uh, that's going to be a problem if somebody decides to bring something against you legally. So, things like this, where there are principles that you can see reflected in so many different ways in our own day. Perhaps you could put something like DUI under this, where you know what could happen if you're driving impaired. It's not, well, I couldn't help it. It was an accident. Well, you understand that in certain situations, if you allow this to be a risk factor, then things can happen. Um, so, that's just some of the wisdom that we see uh, that we can apply in different legal settings. Um, okay, so how much does God care about people and how people treat others? And we notice here something in particular, that God especially cares about people that cannot look out for themselves. Exodus 22, starting in verse 21. He especially cares for people who can't look out for themselves. Verse 21, you shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not afflict any widow or orphan. If you afflict him at all, if he does cry out to me, I will surely hear his cry, and my anger will be kindled, and I will kill you with the sword. And your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you are not to act as a creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest. In other words, if you're trying to help someone, supposedly, don't do it where you're trying to make money off of them in the process. This is supposed to be charity. Don't make a little subtle way of actually making this about what you can do. Uh, we find this reflected in a lot of other places. Isaiah chapter 1 uh, the people are exhorted to plead for the orphan, to defend the widow, uh, or vice versa, where people were taking advantage of them. They were mistreating them. This is the case all the way up until even when Jesus uh, was on the earth and the people were, the uh, leaders of the nation were devouring widows' houses. They were glad to accept um, the uh, sort of forced or pressured offerings of the widows. In order to enrich themselves. And Jesus rebuked them for that. And then we get to the book of James. And we find the same thing reflected. Where in, uh, in James chapter 1. At the, uh, at the end of the book. Or excuse me. At the end of the chapter. Uh, James says these words. He talks about what true religion is. He says. Verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their distress. And to keep oneself unstained by the world. And then he goes on into the next chapter to talk about how people favor the rich over the poor. And it's obvious that it's out of personal interest. But this is what we naturally do. He's saying, this is, you can't do this. 
there are principles that ought to be in the law to protect people who cannot protect themselves, who can't stand up for themselves, who can't help themselves. That doesn't mean that individual people don't also do the same, but God does lay down laws to protect against people mistreating them. Um, he also is concerned about justice. He's concerned about doing what's right no matter what the crowd does or what the crowd wants you to do. Exodus 23, the first three verses. So uh, this would be a very helpful principle to lay out in our own day, in our own legal system and acting. It says, you shall not bear a false report. Don't join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not follow the masses in doing evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after a multitude in order to pervert justice. Don't go with the crowd. Mob rule is not the way to go. Just because everybody else says it's right doesn't mean that it's right. But then he says also, and this might be one of the most surprising verses in the Bible, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his dispute. Does that surprise you? Maybe you would expect something like, don't be partial to a rich man in his dispute. Because the rich man can give you something. The rich man might be able to bribe you. You can, you know, if you're partial to him, then he can show you a little bit of favor. But here, God takes the opposite side of this as well. He doesn't say, don't be partial to it. He doesn't say, you should be partial to a rich man. He's just highlighting something that is also an error that we can make. Being partial to the poor man in his dispute and uh, because someone is in a hard situation because someone is down on their luck uh, people often think that they can do no wrong or there's some kind of merit in pleading for that person against someone who is rich or well off the the person who is in a more powerful position or a more influential position or someone who has made it more is automatically in our culture assumed to be wrong they're the one, you know, certainly it's the one who is oppressed, the one who is held down by society. That person must be right, and we must listen to that person. We must believe what they say. And here he says, don't be partial to either side, including the one that you wouldn't think would be the natural person to be partial to. You see how these things would be beneficial in our day to, to follow these, type, uh, these types of, of laws or legal standards or the principles that are behind them. A couple more things. We learn that God can rule effectively through human rulers, even sinful ones, even sinful human rulers. There's a prescription um, for what kind of character a ruler should have. Deuteronomy 17, you can read that, but it goes into the details of what a king should do when a king comes into the land. And we find that in the midst of the Old Testament law, God actually used a number of sinful rulers to nonetheless carry out his will and his purposes in the nation. Um, We'll look, about, we'll look at more of that as we go as far as the structure and what a ruler should be uh, in future weeks. Um, fifthly, no type of laws will completely stop sin or crime or injustice. No type of laws will completely stop sin or crime or injustice. And sorry, I think I have something repeated here in uh, what we can learn from a, a previous slide. But no type of laws will stop this. So God gives all these wise laws. He gives them to Israel. And what do they do with it? Yeah, they absolutely pervert it like crazy right from the start. Before they even get the law, Moses isn't even down from Mount Sinai yet. And what are they doing? They're out there worshiping the golden calf. They make a golden calf to idol, uh, to worship. There, there is no law itself that will be able to stop sin or crime or 
injustice. It entirely, I shouldn't say entirely, uh, in addition to a right standard, in addition to the right kind of law, it's also necessary to have the right kind of people who are following it and who are enforcing it and who are making decisions based upon that. And this was the flaw with Israel. They had a perfectly given law of God, and yet that was not enough. There are some people today who look at America's laws even. They say, if we could just get back, if we could just follow the Constitution the way that it was written, you know, the way that things were supposed to be. Well, Israel had a law that was given by God himself, and even that was not enough. Even that wasn't enough because the problem was with the people. So we can learn from Old Covenant laws that no type of laws will completely stop crime or injustice. Now, that said, good laws can be very helpful in that. Good structure can do its best to deter the wrong kind of people from being in positions of power. So there, it, it's worth trying to do something. There's no, it's not that we just simply say, well, it doesn't matter because the laws don't do anything and even Israel didn't do anything. Well, it's not that. It's just you're never going to bring about a perfect situation and we need to make sure that we temper our expectations even if we were to have the perfect law. We're never going to get rid of everything. We need to recognize that. And if that changes the way that we think about our efforts and our drives to try to change the laws and the system of our country in order to make things right. We need to recognize that we'll never get it where we want it to be until Christ returns. And so we need to keep that in mind. So then, uh, these are the things that God says and that God's law teaches us. Um, we'll look in the future again about what is at the heart of these commandments. And, and we'll talk next time about what the government actually should be, positively speaking. What does it look like for the government to pass righteous laws and to uphold righteous standards? Uh, but hopefully this will help you to see a little bit of why you, don't need to, uh, why you don't need to give in to people's persuasion who try to say that we should take the Old Testament standard, we should enforce its, its uh, commandments, its punishments, its structure, and everything like that. Because God doesn't tell us to do that. And God expects something different of us. Uh, let's pray and close and then we'll come back to this next time. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the laws that you have revealed your character in, in your word. Thank you for the wisdom with which you ruled Israel in the old covenant setting. And we pray that you would help us to not be like them, not rebellious against you, but instead that we might worship you from the heart. And we thank you that you've given us the spirit of God so that we can do that. Help us this morning, the rest of this time here together to be built up and encouraged by your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.